for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, X marks the spot where Twitter will go to vanish forever, it seems. Owner Elon Musk has decided to do away with the familiar Bird logo and the whole idea of tweeting to be replaced by a simple black and white X. What does it mean? Who knows? One of America's top branding experts thinks it's a terrible move. He joins us to tell us why. Amsterdam is banning cruise ships in an effort to curb tourism and cut down on pollution. It's the latest city to do so, following in the wake of others such as Barcelona and Venice. So should Canadian cities that welcome the ships now be looking at anything similar? Ontario's education minister is ordering a review into the circumstances surrounding the suicide of a 60-year-old educator who alleges that he was singled out as a racist and bullied and intimidated during a diversity, equity, and inclusion and inclusion course in 2021. So what happened? And who, if anyone, should be held responsible? But first, former national security analyst Stephanie Carvin joins me to talk about a former RCMP officer who stands accused with foreign interference-related charges. William Miker was arrested in Vancouver last Thursday and charged with two offenses, under the Security of Information Act, the Mounties say Miker, quote, contributed to the Chinese government's efforts to identify and intimidate an individual outside the scope of Canadian law. So what does that mean? We find out. But a retired RCMP officer charged with allegations of foreign interference on behalf of China is expected to appear in court again this week. The Mounties announced Friday that 60-year-old William Miker had been arrested in Vancouver the day before and charged with preparatory acts for the benefit of a foreign entity and conspiracy. Now, these are both uh, offenses that fall under the Security of Information Act. Uh, the release alleges that uh, Miker contributed to the Chinese government's efforts to identify and intimidate an individual outside the scope of Canadian law. Here is a report from Friday explaining the charges. Former RCMP officer William Miker is being accused of helping the Chinese government to identify and intimidate someone in an investigation that began in the fall of 2021. The RCMP say he is from Hong Kong and he used his network of Canadian contacts to get intelligence or services that benefited the People's Republic of China. The 60-year-old is now charged with conspiracy and preparatory acts for the benefit of a foreign entity. Police have not said who was the target of Beijing's alleged intimidation campaign. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Please say the accusations are not related to election interference or politics. Now, Miker is someone who spent 23 years with the RCMP, mainly as an undercover operative. He'd been a bond trader. He did a lot of financial stuff. He uh, infiltrated uh, drug cartels. I mean, he's did a lot of stuff for the RCMP beforehand, before heading off to uh, Hong Kong after he retired. Um and he spoke a bit. He was actually on a podcast, not recently, a couple of years, last year, last year in Hong Kong, uh, where he spoke about working undercover. It was called Regulatory Ramblings a little more than a year ago. He spoke about working undercover uh, in the world of Canadian comedy, uh, commodities and the Medellin cartel. Here's a bit of his views on stuff. Early in my police career, I used to get angry and offended by the injustice that I used to see, the inability to hold you know, bad guys accountable and how they get off. And and then you you you... I just got to a point where I realized all governments, all societies operate with a certain license for larceny because, you know, you've got to skid the wheels. And, and I don't think it's any different on a country level than it is at a, at a local level. 
Uh, Bill Miker there. The arrest comes, of course, as there is increased focus on the whole issue of foreign interference in this country and how to address it. And is our security apparatus uh, doing enough to stop it? Stephanie Carvin, of course, is a regular guest here. She's an assistant professor with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton. Stephanie, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on again. This is quite the, I mean, this is quite the story because it's kind of hard to sort of figure out exactly what's happened here, but these are quite serious allegations and quite, um, and, and unprecedented as well, I gather. Yeah, I mean, well, yes and no. And we have had um, RCMP officers charged with breaching the Security of Information Act before. Um, the Cameron Ortis case is before the right, courts right now. Right. But you're right. It's not the same thing. I mean, Cameron Ortis is alleged to have provided information to criminal organizations, um, not a state entity that was looking to engage in uh, foreign interference activities. So, yes, it's novel in the sense that, you know, the RCMP was actually describing this as a foreign interference case um, very explicitly, even though this is more or less kind of a, a spying case, a Security of Information Act uh, case. So um, I, I think the RCMP, to a certain extent, is, is understandably under pressure to be seen doing something on this file. Uh, and, and we have this case. So, yeah, it is, um, at least in terms of the way it's being presented and the fact that it is a former RCMP officer being charged with helping a state entity is, is, is pretty new, at least for the post-Cold War era. Right. And we don't have much of an idea of exactly what it is uh, that Bill Miker's accused of having done. We can sort of read between the lines a little bit, but it's tough to figure out exactly uh, what the allegations are, the accusations are here. Right. So what we know is that the charges uh, or the investigation the RCMP started began in 2021. So this investigation has been going on for, uh, you know, up to two years. And, uh, you know, from the charges, it seems that uh, you know, it was China that that uh, Michael was helping. Uh, and, you know, you know, there's some questions here. We do know that, you know, again, like most, you know, when I've been on the show and we've talked about foreign interference, we've yeah. talked a lot about what I would call the covert side of foreign interference, which is, you know, trying to mess with public opinion, um, trying to sway elections, trying to achieve certain results, right? That's one half of the foreign interference equation. The second half is really harassment, right? The harassment and threatening of people uh, on Canadian soil uh, to get them to do something they wouldn't otherwise want to do or to intimidate them to some end. And this is the kind of foreign interference we don't hear as much about, although it is the foreign interference which, you know, a lot of um, Chinese Canadians, uh, Hong Kong activists, Uyghurs, Tibetans, they experience on a very regular basis. So the question is, it, or it, it seems to be the case that uh, this individual may have been using some kind of information that was privileged or that he had access to and betrayed in order to uh, basically provide uh, a state the ability to engage in this kind of harassment. That seems to be to be what this is. And if that's the case, that's pretty bad. Um, we do know, I mean, there's some famous cases out there like Operation Fox Hunt, for example, which has been pressuring, um, you know, it started out as trying to get a lot of criminals, to be fair, or people accused of stealing large amounts of money from China who were hiding in Canada um, to go back to China to face those charges and to return the money. And, you know, uh, the problem being that the Chinese justice system doesn't quite measure up to Canadian standards, but you can kind of see why 
they would want that to happen. I think the bigger problem is it's not just the criminals now that China's going after. It's also a lot of these pro-democracy activists, a lot of uh, people who are who don't like the Beijing line, who resist the Beijing line. And so what I'm curious about is, you know, was this harassment against someone who's accused? of crime and theft in China, or was this someone who was, a, say, a pro-democracy activist um, that, that, you know, uh, Mr. Miker was, was gathering information on? Right. And given his background, his extensive background in financial crimes, one would lean towards the former. You know, there was clearly, I mean, when Xi Jinping came in, there was a big anti-corruption campaign. There was a huge push to try to track down people who had left China with a whole bunch of money uh, and bring yes. them back to face to face charges. And you're right, clearly, it, it, you know, and there was always at the time accusations that this was just, you know, th- this was happening, truly. But there was also this was a cover for him to crack down on anyone he didn't like. So I guess therein lies the devil will be in the details here to some extent. But for them to even bring this charge against a former RCMP officer, one who clearly was very public, I mean, he's he was. I was playing a piece of a podcast he did talking about his work a year ago, right? He was already under investigation at this point. So it's an interesting one because he's not, it's not covert. It's not someone you've never heard of. He was very easy to sort of find information on. And he talked about himself quite publicly, actually. Yeah, he'd been interviewed by the CBC, by the Australian Broadcasting Network. He had a profile with the Speakers Bureau. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he he was right there. So, I mean, again, I guess the question is, was he hiding in plain sight? Did he perhaps lose perspective of what he was doing? Um, again, and I'm also curious as to what kind of information. So, again, like Security of Information Act information. Like, right. what was it that he had access to that would actually breach that, considering he'd been outside of the RCMP for a number of years? And, right. and, and, like, and I mean, and to be honest, again, like, the more you learn about this guy's career, like, you realize, you know, there's been, there's been some sketchy episodes um, in, in this person's career. Um, apparently, he ran for office without telling the RCMP. Yes, I remember right? saw that one, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, there was also some, some questions about whether or not, you know, his relationship with a judge at some point in, a, in another case. And, yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, although this person had been public, this person was also not, you know, Mr. Miker was not um, uh, free of co- a controversial background, shall we say. Right, well, I mean, he, uh, he did some very, yeah, the, yeah he did some controversial stuff, no, no, yeah. National Security Analyst Stephanie Carvin is with us this half hour. We're talking about the arrest last week of a 60-year-old former Mountie named William or Bill, rather, Miker, uh, who was arrested in Vancouver. He'd been living in Hong Kong for quite a while, and uh, he's accused under the, uh, I mean, essentially accused of having helped out China with something. Uh, both of his offenses fall under the Security of Information Act, and essentially it was, it's, if you read sort of the charges, it, it was essentially about intimidating someone here, and the exact wording was contributed to the Chinese government government's efforts to identify and intimidate an individual outside the scope of Canadian law. Now, he has a long background working undercover fighting financial crime, so it could have something to do with China's crackdown on corruption, which uh, has been going on for many years now. Uh, but he faces these charges here, so Stephanie's here to help explain them to us, or at least helps. I mean, the nature of the charges themselves tell us something about what he's accused of having done. And you pointed out um, the complexities of it, because what kind of information could he have access to, right? That would be, that would fit this, uh, this bill. So, yeah, I mean, that's what's not clear to me. I mean, unless for some way he was accessing information, was he, um, is it information that he had from years ago, like previous contacts, people he 
kept up. I mean, that part to me is, is what I'm not clear about is like, what is it that this person would have had that would have been covered by the Security of Information Act? It just doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me. I mean, we don't actually see a lot of charges under the Security of Information Act in Canada. I mean, the Cameron Ortis case was kind of one of the first big use of charges that we've seen in, um, in, in Canadian law. And, of course, that's still working its way through the court system. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out and how what information exactly that this person had that can um, effectively um, show uh, that, that there, there was this breach, right, that, that this person had some kind of confidential information um, that, that, you know, was otherwise privileged that, that they were giving up to, to a state. Right. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's the details of it. I don't know how many, how much we're going to find out, uh, given the sensitivities of it. But the details of it will be, will be interesting for sure. Given his background as well. I mean, this is not someone who doesn't understand how the rules work. I mean, he he knew enough about them to be able to to bend them at the at, as a cop, right? I mean, that's what he did, as an undercover officer. Um, what do you think this says about the ability of the security apparatus to look into these kinds of cases? We don't know what will happen with uh, with Bill Miker, but what does it say about our ability to actually look into these sorts of cases? Um, because there's been a lot made of that as well. Well, this is what's really interesting. I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to argue that things are politically driven, but I don't think the timing here is coincidental, right? Um, you know, right. after almost a year of stories which began in November of last year about uh, foreign interference in Canada, we are starting to see charges being laid. Um, now, to the RCMP's credit, we saw as far back as 2020, 2021, that they had put on their website that foreign interference was something that they were taking more seriously as a part of their investigations. And you do wonder if that was related to this, considering they started uh, this investigation in 2021, and uh, now perhaps it's just kind of bearing fruit. But um, yeah, I mean, I do think the RCMP is is under some pressure to take this stuff seriously. It just, you know, but you have to have the, the will to do so. And, you know, you also have to have people who understand what foreign interference is. Uh, it's a very nuanced kind of um, threat to Canada. It's not something that's always obvious, especially since it's covert. Um, how can you prove uh, the, the various charges? So it, it, it's a difficult case, I think, for the RCMP to mount. But it does show that, you know, when, when you know, push comes to shove, that Canada can actually bring charges forward for individuals who are engaging in, in this, these kinds of activities. Yeah, I, and I guess the last piece here, too, is that I, I, I don't know how open to interpretation it will be, but the fact that he is a former Mountie, and as I think you were pointing out in another interview, that oftentimes people are told, especially from diaspora communities in this country, oh, if you have a trou any trouble with this, go to the police, right? And what are they going to see when they see this? Yeah, exactly. And I think that is going to be of concern. I mean, already, I mean, the, the, the community is very upset with, I think, the police response. And that's because you know, the response to foreign interference is divided along our federal system, right? So it's like if you have a problem, if you're facing threats and you think it's coming from a state or some kind of uh, even terrorist organization, for example, you call the municipal police and they're like, okay, well, you know, uh, we can't really do anything if this is coming from China. Uh, sorry. And then so you call CSIS or the RCMP and they're like, okay, well, that's great, but we don't have jurisdiction for your area. 
And CSIS doesn't actually right. have law enforcement powers, so they can take all the information from you, but they can't actually do anything about it. So it is important, I think, you know, that, you know, I said we do have some of the tools, but I think we can be more ambitious. And I do think the government is looking at a range of tools, a Foreign Agent Registry Act. It would be interesting to know if, uh, you know, Mr. Miker would have to have registered under the Foreign Agency Registry right. Act if, right. if, or a Foreign Agent Registry if we actually had one in Canada, right? That would be right. kind of an interesting thing. Um, but exactly. also, you know, do we need to actually bring oh. laws forward? Stephanie, as always, thank you for your insight on this. No problem. Thanks for having me on. This has been both a tragic and disturbing case and one that Ontario's education minister has asked his department to conduct a review of to find out what exactly happened. And it involves a 60-year-old longtime Toronto educator who took his own life last week. Uh, Stephen Lecce, the education minister, calls the allegations around the case disturbing. Uh, It involves a gentleman named Richard Bilkstowe. And what happened last week marked the very tragic end to what had been a stellar career in education that spanned several decades and two countries. He had retired in 2019 after working first for years in Buffalo, New York, and then later in Toronto, where he worked mainly and specialized in adult education. But after he was left, as is often the case these days, he was called back frequently by the Toronto District School Board as a contract principal when others were on leave. And it's that way that he found himself taking part in what would be called professional training um, in 2021, in this case, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And where according to a lawsuit that he filed, it was alleged that he was reprimanded for disagreeing with a facilitator that Canada was a more racist country than the U.S. Countries, of course, he knew well. He'd lived in both. He'd worked in both. So he objected to that claim, saying it was doing a disservice to his students. And according to the lawsuit for the rest of the training session and throughout the follow-up training session the week after, facilitators repeatedly referred to his comments as examples of white supremacy. His family writes last week, and I thank the National Post for this, unfortunately, the stress and effects of these incidents continue to plague Richard. Last week, he succumbed to this distress. Um, His family and friends have been left reeling and wishing they could have had the chance to convince him that he was loved, respected, and needed here. Well, someone who's been paying close attention to this case as well as Greg Brady. He's host of Toronto Today on Chorus's 640 Toronto. Greg, thanks so much. Yeah, Ben, of course, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was thanks to your Twitter feed that I saw that, in fact, there had been mm-hmm. some movement today, uh, a bunch of big organizations, but specifically, I guess, the education minister now saying, I want to know what happened here. And uh, you think that's absolutely the right move? I, I just think we need, we've got more questions than we have answers right now, Ben. And, uh, and it's, it, it's a very, you laid it out quite, um, quite astutely, it's a very unique case. There just, there just aren't too many like it. People will... Um, debate and they will dispute and they may even lose jobs but now we have someone who's taken his own life um, and the family is quite convinced based on the filing uh, and and the lawsuit that was still in the mix in front of the courts um, that this person this educator as you as you lay out who you know given three decades of service mostly to the same board but as you said it worked in buffalo new york too he just he never mentally recovered from basically getting uh, chastised and put in his place. And, and I think, again, it's one thing to be on the losing side of an argument. It's another thing for, um, you know, for the, for the, uh, 
the element of, of being considered, well, you're a white supremacist or you're a racist. That is a really tough thing to hear uh, about yourself when you wouldn't think it's true. And it's a really tough thing to shake reputationally in um, maybe in the times we live in. So it, this story has it's certainly divided people already. And uh, and, yeah, I, I don't think the education minister in the province here in Ontario, Stephen Lecce, had much of a choice but to get involved. The question is, who does he go to? Because the TDSB, is the TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, just going to investigate itself? That's what people are a bit worried about right now, that there just won't be oversight on the investigation itself. Yeah, I, I saw that the the TSAA, who who represent administrators, I guess, and principals and so forth, um, they spoke today that they had actually re- that he had reached out to them back in 2021, early on, saying, "Listen, I, I've had a very unfortunate and pleasant experience with this. I've been bullied and intimidated and harassed, and I want something done about it." And according to them, at least the TDSB, the board never looked into it as far as they know. And then there was this lawsuit. There's so many things going on at once. Uh, and you're right. This is one of those subject matters that is, that is people find tough to talk about. It's a controversial one. It is. And, and I think the biggest thing, um, uh, and, and you're hitting at it too, was um, R- Richard Bilkstow, um basically was left alone to defend himself. Like nobody sort of diffused the bomb in the room. They brought in a, a group called the Kojo Institute um, to, to perform this um, DEI training. And that's one thing in itself, of course. That's something businesses are doing more and more often these days and trying to level the playing field. And I think a lot of people understand and are quite willing um, to participate. But when, when things started going south in this particular meeting, then I think that's where, that's where um, you know, the teacher and his family and, and many around him who weren't in the room at the time thought, where was the oversight to say, hey, let's all take five minutes here. Let's all calm this down. Let's all let's all, you know, like take this from, uh, you know, from a fever pitch to something that's a little more modern. Again, disagreement, debate, uh, discourse. It's all part of it's, it's all part of the dialogue, especially on hot button issues that, that might involve race and, and how it, and, and the role it plays in education. But but nobody seemed to do that here. And that's sort of the the issue that I think a lot of people are coming to now. It feels like a tipping point, to be honest. And as you know, it's, it's happening um, all across this country. There's so many sort of fights happening right now about education that just weren't happening 15, 20 years ago. And there people are getting divided into parents versus non-parents, parents versus educators. There is some left versus right aspect to, to some of the arguments. But this just seems to be a case. Was this person bullied? Was this person demeaned? And did nobody stand up for him when they should have? Yeah, and I, I think you, you, you've talked about this. You've tweeted about this. Um, you know, one of the issues here is you get the sense, and I don't know how correct this is, that the boards themselves are paralyzed. They, they, they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to get into the middle of these arguments because they're so afraid of being, uh, you know, lumped in with whomever is on, uh, perceived to be on the wrong side of this, right? And in this case, I think clearly from the beginning, uh, Richard Bilkstow at least felt personally that I wouldn't want to speak for him, but that he had been unfairly targeted this way and that but no one wanted to jump in and say wait a second you can't you can't be calling we didn't hire you to do diversity equity and inclusion training which i've been through actually it's actually very helpful but we didn't hire you to sort of castigate people as racists and white supremacists in in class like you you cannot do that at least according to the allegations yeah that's that's the one word is the word is accosted that that seems to be in one of the court filings that's how he felt at that point in time and it's not him saying, well, here's my personal experience teaching 
uh, students of all races and backgrounds and creeds. Here's my experience teaching in Buffalo, New York. Like, you're right, Ben. We, we've both been through this. And I think people are more conscious of, oh, that's your lived experience. Okay, I accept that. I won't tell you what your lived experience is. But it's really difficult to then turn back the other way and say, no, you don't know what you're talking about because of the color of your skin. And it does feel like this session was recorded. And the National Post, that uh, the story that you referenced, there's been a couple of them in the last uh, week and a half or so since this, uh, since this teacher took his own life. Um, the, the National Post seems quite convinced that they've got the recordings from this session um, and, and that it, it, it's going to actually prove the family and, and prove, in essence, um, you know, what, what Bill Stowe was dealing with was certainly a case of somebody going too far in a session that's, that's again, meant to be about uh, more greater understanding, more discourse. And, you know, if, if some people in the room think one thing, then you, you leave it. And, and but you, you do your best to, uh, to lay it out and say, well, this is how I, I view this and this is how I feel. But it, it just didn't seem like it was left alone in this particular session. Yeah, and I, I, I guess just looking back at at the sort of some of the testimonials about about the kind of educator he was. I mean, this was someone who took um, who took discrimination really seriously as well. He saw it as part of his job. I suppose teaching in Buffalo partially I mean, would, would would you know would have given him a different experience than teaching in Toronto. But at the same time, it seemed he was very conscientious about it, and that this um, you know this scarlet letter, so to speak, really impacted him in a way that you know. And it just reminds you of the power of these things. I mean. You can see it. I'm sure you can see entire careers kind of decimated by that kind of accusation, and the fact that it was being thrown around in that environment. We don't know all the details, obviously, and these mm-hmm. are allegations. I should point out, but even just to bring it up, I mean, you know, that's it's uh, it seems it seems like it's something that that really needs looking into. What's the reaction been, sort of, from from listeners and so on? I mean, it, this has been one of these stories that's sort of circulating out there. I feel like now that the education minister has decided to launch a review, it's going to get even more coverage. Yeah, and and I think people are are being as um, I, I think they they want the answers, but they're trying to be as objective about this as they can. It's a it's a terrible thing for anybody to take their own life. It's a terrible thing for someone to feel bullied in the workplace. Um, and I don't want to see this one. I really don't want to see this one split a, among political lines. I'm you know on the air this morning when we talked about it last Friday. Um, I'm playing it as absolutely up the middle as as is needed because I think we need to we need to hear both sides of this. We need to hear what gojo was trying to do this this group that was brought in to say hey we are trying to provide a service we wouldn't be used by all these organizations and all these corporations if there wasn't some benefit to it but here's the thing as well i I neglected to mention i mean i mean bilsko bilsko had already won uh a workplace safety and insurance board claim i mean like he had already uh it would it was already deemed that the workers compensation board gave him a loss of earnings benefit but it was only for a few months for chronic mental stress. But then, as you know, he just couldn't get back and be the educator that he once was again after this process. And that's less than, that's about 24 months ago, two years ago from this. And he takes his own life a week and a half ago. So this, this just takes on, again, it's, it's beyond tragic, but I also think it could be a tipping point in terms of what do parents want? What do educators want in terms of um, they're like, they're there for a reason. They earned their degree. They've got that, those decades of experience. They've probably seen this, done that, got the t-shirt. And, and what's the process when you bring in somebody to, to maybe again, give them an element of, of DEI, how far is it supposed to go? You don't, you don't want none of it, but, but was this one person that was pushed too far and was his recollection of events accurate the compensation board so far seems to think 
that this guy had it absolutely correct, that, that he was pushed around too much and it was patently unfair. Great to have Greg Brady up late. <laughs> Thanks again for this host of Toronto Today on Chorus 640 in Toronto. Uh, we're talking about the the case of Richard Biltsko. He was a 60-year-old educator in Toronto. He'd been a long-time educator in both Buffalo and Toronto. And he took his own life earlier this month. And it followed a series of events back in 2021 where he was taking professional training, diversity, equity, and inclusion training to be specific. And it led, there was something happened within his training where he emerged from that uh, feeling as if he'd been bullied, harassed, intimidated. He'd been apparently, according to him, called a racist, uh, that he that he had disagreed that Canada was a more racist country than the U.S., two countries he knew well, obviously. And uh, here we are. So now there's an invest- a review under- underway, apparently, uh, according to the Ontario Education Minister's office today. Greg, one of the things that, that struck me about this case, too, is that here's an individual who the school board entrusted as a principal, not just as anybody, but to essentially you know, temporarily at least run schools. And yet when he displayed what had to have been, or at least came out and said, I, I'm, I'm suffering here. I'm suffering here. And that's the sort of, regardless of the, of the facts of the case, he felt he was in, in bad shape. And it feels like the board just didn't do enough to recognize that they had someone in their midst who they trusted and liked, or at least trusted at one point, um, yeah. who was having some mental health issues. Yeah, and, and was just, uh, uh, again, probably, uh, I won't say blindsided by the accusation, but again, it's a, it's a heck of a thing to be referenced uh, w- when you simply disagree with, well, you know, it's like this in Canada. No, it's like this in the United States. We have those conversations all the time about education and health care and politics and our systems and our infrastructure. But it's one thing for, uh, you know, for, for, again, people to disagree on, on this matter. And, and you laid it out there. I mean, if you're in education that long, this person was clearly teaching in the 80s and he was clearly teaching in the 90s. That was a lot more of a, um, you know, hey, you, you take your licks and you move on, stiff upper lip. Like your, your job is probably yeah. never to show weakness or pain if you're a principal or vice principal, male or female. Um, and, and how we used to walk into elementary schools and, and high schools and revere those people. You, it was a bad day, obviously, when you yeah, got sent to the vice or, principal. Or fear to those people. Yeah, or fear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. Like, like for this, this man to be just reduced with all this experience, all this acumen. And, and you know, and, and again, the, the, the TDSB is, um, is, is it's going to be an interesting um, come to moment now because there's going to be people, you know, are they going to turn and say, well, we've overdone it with this type of behavior. I get people saying, well, this isn't the usual for these type of, of DEI seminars. And of course it isn't. And it's not the usual outcome, not by a long shot. But is that because people are, I've heard from so many educators, teachers have been teaching for three years. P- teachers have been teaching for 23 years in the last four days since this story popped up, Ben. And, and they say, I'm afraid to say anything. And I might be wrong when I say something, but I'm just afraid to be wrong about something right now. I walk on eggshells. I walk on eggshells with what I teach my students. I walk on eggshells with what I say in the staff room. And, and we know, even in our workplaces, we know what would be out of date. We know what would be over the line. But teachers seem especially concerned about it in, in the atmosphere they work in right now. Yeah, I, I partially I imagine because the sands shift quickly uh, where they are, and and also because if you look at this situation, they may feel like if something were to go wrong, who's going to look out for them? I mean, clearly, maybe the union will. Who knows? But it feels like they probably don't feel like they have a lot of backup. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Um, when you're you're put on leave, um, there's you know I I know we've got a process in the criminal courts where you're basically innocent until proven guilty. I I, I would guess if you're a teacher or a principal. 
and you're put on leave. This didn't happen in this particular case, but if you get sent home, if there's, and there have been a few cases like this in the TDSB, there've been a few cases like this um, in, uh, in, in other boards in, uh, in Ontario. Um, I mean, take the, the, the teacher in, uh, in Halton who was wearing the prosthetic breast. Like, what a, it's a complicated right. scenario, an unbelievably complicated scenario. It started getting a ton of attention in the United States. But that's the job of the school board. The, the job of the school board is to figure out, we need to do something here. I didn't think it was fair to the teacher. I didn't think it was fair to the students. I didn't think it was fair to the community. Your job is to oversee schools and issues of academic integrity. When something usurps that and, and takes a ton of attention away, then sit as many people down as you possibly can in a room, separately or together, and get on top of these issues. That's what you're elected for. I often think, Ben, we, we, we have these municipal elections every four years, and we elect the school board, but we're very concerned, as we should be, with who the mayor will be, who the deputy mayor will be, who the councilors are, and school boards are often an afterthought. And then my goodness, for your for our communities now, I think we're realizing who you elect to a school board ends up being pretty damn important. Yeah, it's such a huge deal. Now, and I agree with you completely. I'm fully for diversity, and equity, inclusion training. I've had it. I think it's really helpful, especially, you know, I'm a 52-year-old white guy. It's It was helpful for me. I, I learned a lot. At the same time, mm-hmm. we have to, I think what we're seeing is just the, the, the kind of really vicious charge language that people feel so comfortable throwing around on all sides of these arguments these days. I mean, you watch those school board fights sometimes. You think, wow, like really? People screaming at each other, screaming all kinds of horrific, horrific stuff at each other. And you think... This really isn't going to solve anything at all. And this case, sadly, as tragic as it is, you're right, it could be that tipping point where people finally say, enough, enough. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Um, this, this is a person that, by all accounts, by all accounts, had championed inclusion. He championed, championed equal opportunity. He had, he had you know, done what he could to, to get kids that weren't athletic onto sports teams. He got kids that were shy into you know, into doing things that were more outgoing and giving speeches at the front of the class or, or getting involved in school plays when he was teaching before he got into adult education. So um, I'll be honest, my dad was in education his whole life, taught adult ed the last 12 years, and he sounded like somebody that reminded me of my dad, who's still alive in London, yeah. Ontario at 79. And, and I thought to myself how he'd feel if he'd been castigated. I'm, I'm sure, hey, there are no perfect human beings, so there sure aren't any perfect teachers or educators, but I, I can only imagine how he'd feel being uh, vilified like this with nobody standing up and not even getting an opportunity later on to, to hash something out. Usually that's what happens. So, you, you know, tempers flare, something gets said, you, you cooler heads prevail, and you can work it out later that day or the next day. This yeah. didn't seem like that kind of scenario with a seminar where it's sort of pop in, do the seminar, yeah. pop out, you never hear from the people again. That's part of the problem. It's not two work colleagues saying, we, we've got a disconnect here, so let's yeah. let's sit down and hash it out for the betterment of both our our futures. This just wasn't able to right. happen this in this manner. Thanks so much. I appreciate you staying up. Much appreciated. Oh, Ben, anytime for you. Thanks so much. Uh, let's head to Nova Scotia now. I don't know if you saw images of the rain that fell in parts of Nova Scotia on Friday and Saturday. I mean, it was just torrential torrential some areas got 250 millimeters plus up to like 300 in some places in less than you know often in less than 24 hours this was just a devastating amount of rain that fell very quickly it caused flooding needless to say washing out roads bridges lots of damage um it's proven deadly there are still 
the RCMP today say they found one body. There are four people missing generally. Uh, one body has been found. They've found the remains of somebody else that's we're waiting on information i believe there are still two children missing as well all of them sort of from the same area got washed away in a vehicle um rcmp chief superintendent sue black in nova scotia uh, made this announcement this afternoon i regretfully share with you that earlier today we recovered the remains of a man who was reported missing on july 22nd when the region was experiencing the extreme flood conditions Right. Uh, Again, four people, including those two kids, were reported missing on Saturday when the two vehicles they were traveling in were submerged uh, in the area of West Hants, that's northwest of Halifax. The Premier, Tim Houston, said, quote, this is difficult to comprehend. It's difficult to comprehend the magnitude of the tragedy. We can rebuild roads and bridges and buildings, but we can't bring people back. Um, And the legacy for these floods will be the um, incredibly tragic uh, loss of life. That is Nova Scotia's Premier Tim Houston. Provincial officials said that 25 bridges had been affected, 19 damaged, six destroyed, at least 50 roads sustained significant damage. A lot of them uh, were in the municipality of the district of Lunenburg, a place you may know if you've ever been there, a big popular tourist spot on the south shore of Nova Scotia. They declared a state of a local emergency today due to the flooding in the area. And the mayor of the municipality of the district of Lunenburg is Carolyn Bolivar Getson. And she joins us now, uh, Mayor Boulevard Getson. Thank you so much. Well, I I can tell you that I had gone to the hospital earlier that day to visit my mom. And I went around 5 o'clock and I came out at 10. And I should have come out at 6 because there was that much difference even in that length of time. Uh, we experienced between 260 and 320 millimeters of rain in 18 hours, which is typically our whole summer's worth of rain in 18 hours. Yeah, I was looking up that amount of rain, and, and this is the, something that they would refer to in during sort of monsoon season as being a big rainfall yes, in, in, in the southern hemisphere. I mean, that's a lot of rain. It's hard to even imagine what that amount of rain does in that short period of time, but it was washing away everything around you. It definitely was. We have major infrastructure deficits because of this. We have trenches on side of our uh, highways that are four and five feet deep where it took the shoulders completely away. Our 100 series highways have been washed away. Uh, major bridge infrastructure uh, has been compromised to the extent that some will have to be completely replaced, some washed completely out. It's definitely a devastating time in our province. What about just, I, mean, I realize today there are some evacuations where you are, I guess right now, it's the water is ebbing, uh, but there are still some threats there as well. And and you have a lot of, do you have a lot of tourists around these days? Like this is, we're in the middle of the summer, right? Well, Lunaburg County is typically a very touristy uh, attraction. Mm. We have uh, a lot of things here going for us when it comes to UNESCO World Heritage Sites and everything else in the area. So yes, we do have a lot of people here. Uh, I learned last night about a, campground uh, that had 250 to 300 residents and the road was uh, being overtaken by the Martins River so that the road was completely impassable. Now we have told people to shelter at home and try to uh, stay put. Uh, We had no idea we had 250, 300 residents in a campground that couldn't get out. So we definitely put a plan in place to make sure that the campground guests were able to be evacuated. And that was overseen by the provincial departments to get them out and our REMO, our regional emergency management staff. Yeah. And it went very well. 
Oh, good, good. And, and just the amount of work they've had to do. I mean, of course, as is always the case, these are people who live in your community as well. So not only are they trying to help other people, they have to keep a, try and keep an eye on their own families and properties as well, right? Always a difficult one. Yeah, well, it definitely has been neighbors helping neighbors, friends helping friends, uh, the fire department, the ground search and rescue, uh, all types of volunteers stepping up to help pump basements, uh, to help elderly people out of their homes when their driveways were compromised and there was no first responders that could get there. We have one story of an individual that had to flee his house in a backhoe wow. um, to get lifted out of his, uh, over his driveway to be able to be taken to a comfort center. And, and I suppose, I mean, right now, the big problem and I, you know, I've covered floods in the past in other parts of the world. The problem is when the water recedes, it's what's left behind, right? There's just so water does so much damage so quickly. Well, there's so much, uh, I guess, uh, so many assessments that's going to have to be carried out in the next few weeks uh, of all the infrastructure, even our park system. We've closed all our municipal parks and trails until such time that we can make sure that they are safe uh, to be in. And again, the water is still over some of these uh, roads and trails, so we have to wait for the water to recede enough so they can be looked at to make sure that they're safe for the people to travel on. And if not, they'll have to remain closed until we can get that infrastructure replaced. Well, and, and you'd seen floods before. I was reading an interview you'd given elsewhere, and you were talking about uh, having been through the floods of 2005, but this was as bad as you'd ever seen, I gather. Uh, this year, the floods of 2005 uh didn't come in 18 hours. Right. Uh, it was continual rain for a long period. Yes, it did a lot of damage. There was a lot of people uh, that was flooded out from the Heb Lake Dam. Uh, they had to release water. That dam provides water to the town of Bridgewater. And back in 2005, the infrastructure was not like it is today. Uh, we were able to do, or they were able to do, the Public Service Commission a more controlled release of the water. And it worked much better. So the people downstream didn't get flooded out to the extent that they did in 2005. But yes, 2005 was definitely, uh, and that was in May. Again, it wasn't a spring thaw or anything like that. It was, again, continual rains that had happened over a period of time, not over 18 hours. Yeah, it's it's really hard to imagine. Uh, I mean, I, I, I struggle to imagine 320 millimeters of rain in, you know, 18 hours. That just seems an almost impossible amount of rain. What are the big challenges? That, I mean, the, one, it looks from uh, the challenges. I mean, it happened. There was a lot of rain all around you. So I gather there's a lot of demand for help right now, too. There's a lot of demand for help. Uh, I will say that there's projects have been stopped and people have been redirected. Uh, to help with the cleanup. Uh, you see trucks going constantly on our highways trying to get aggregate into the areas that were washed out. There's a lot happening, but it is going to take time and we are going to have to have the patience of our residents uh, to get things put back. And again, we still have not did a complete assessment of our infrastructure and that will have to be carried out over the next weeks because again, there's so much undermining of the roads and everything else that we want to make sure that they're safe to travel on. I guess that's the big issue is a lot of what's the damage that has been done is damage you might not necessarily see at first glance, right? No, that's absolutely correct. I know of a, a few areas that it looks like the shoulder is gone, but when you actually get down and look, it's actually undermined underneath the road. Right. And these roads have been closed off to the public. And like I said, there's just so many areas. It's not just one area. It was hit hard over a wide span here. 
Carolyn Bolivar Getson is the mayor of the municipality of the District of Lunenburg in Nova Scotia, a beautiful little piece of the world, uh, but suffered some big rain uh, Friday into Saturday, just torrential rain, really uh, over 300 millimeters in some parts of the uh, of the area in, in 18 hours, just a, a catastrophic amount of rain. And it's done a lot of damage. Um, I mean, you worked in provincial government as well, so you understand the challenges. It's been feels like it's been such a tough year for Nova Scotia weather wise. We had Fiona and then the fires and now this. Wow. Yeah, it's unbelievable that I guess Mother Nature, uh, I'm not sure what we did, but Mother Nature is not on our side at this uh, time. I will say that she has uh, forecasted us a fine week this week to hopefully be able to assess and look at some of the damage that has been done from these floods. You spent some time in cabinet, both as Minister of the Environment and as Minister of Emergency Management, I know, so you have a good sort of overall view of how these things work. I mean, just the the amount of all the work that had there, you know, they're still rebuilding in, in, in on Cape Breton. I mean, there's still so much work going on. How do you keep on top of it all? It must be it must be a real challenge for for anybody, uh, whether you be mayor or whether you be uh, cabinet minister, to try to try to keep all these balls in the air. Now that there's been yet another disaster. Well, again, we're already seeing these roads and bridges repaired at an incredible fast timelines. Uh, the resiliency of Nova Scotians to pull together in times uh, like this is astonishing. But yes, uh, as a former cabinet minister responsible for environment and labor and uh, emergency management, you definitely understand and you see firsthand uh, the force behind Mother Nature and what can happen. There has been, I guess we've gone through Hurricane One and White One and so many different significant uh, weather system over the past years. And climate change is real. Climate change is here. Uh, For those that think that these are storms that are only happening one in 100 years or one in 50 years, uh, those times are gone. We have a hurricane season now in Nova Scotia. Every year we are threatened by hurricanes. And whether it comes aground on the south shore or on the eastern shore or Cape Breton or the coast of Newfoundland, it's real. The Atlantic coast is definitely getting hit hard by a hurricane season. We're seeing again the extreme forecasts here with the flooding and with the wildfires. Again, we've never experienced these things. Our climate is changing. We are warming and we are seeing the significant impacts. And I guess we need to change our habits. (laughs) Yeah, just the extreme nature of it. I mean, just for you and Lunenburg, again, I I mean, I actually, on Canada Day, we did a a cross-country tour of of, uh, of Canada to talk to different places about their tourism summers. And, of course, we spoke to Halifax, and they were singing the praises of Lunenburg for a nice trip, right? Um, It it looks like this could pose some real challenges for your, what is a really important part of the economy for the summer, too. Uh, We definitely want to get our infrastructure opened up as quickly as possible. There will be economic impacts uh, to what has happened this weekend. We have told people to stay home. Uh, We have told people to stay off the highways until we get an opportunity to make sure that they're safe to travel. Our 100 series highway again is shut down indefinitely is the word that they're using uh, between two of our exits and just the backlog that's happening Uh, To be able to go off on those areas through Chester and them places, it definitely puts a strain on smaller highways that are not used to handling 100 series traffic. So you're going to see impact on just about every sector of our economy and including tourism and the local businesses, uh, industry, all sorts of things. 
Yeah, I, I, and I guess the, the the opportunity here now is just to try to build back, as always, as we always use the term. I'm not sure exactly what it looks like on the ground in Lunenburg, but to build back better, right? I mean, you have an opportunity now to reinforce some stuff and, and just hope we don't get this kind of rain anytime soon again. Well, I guess that's one opportunity that you do have. It's not a matter of replacing what you had. It's a matter of putting in place what you need to accommodate the weather systems that we currently are having. And the culvert sizes, everything, are not able to handle these weather systems. They were never built for that. Yeah, I guess you're getting a reminder of that now. Well, Mayor, thank you so much. Uh, good luck to everyone there. Uh, I think everyone, of course, yet again, I think a lot of people across this country are looking to Nova Scotia and thinking of you all and, and just how welcoming you are whenever any of us stop there and uh, just hoping that this is the last of these for a while. You've had more than more than your fair share. Well, we always say Nova Scotia strong, but uh, I don't know why it keeps challenging us to see if that's actually the case. Indeed. Thank you again. <laughs> thank you. I don't know if you saw this. This made sort of headlines last week. I've always been interested in it because I spent some time in Amsterdam for work over the years. It's a really great city, and it is absolutely crawling with tourists. And unlike so many places around the world, I mean, certainly at the height of the pandemic, this was not an issue. But for a long time now, Amsterdam has been trying to find new and creative ways to get rid of tourists. They've had, they really feel like they have too many. And it's partly because of the way the city is built, right, with the canals and so on. It's quite narrow. So when you get tons and tons of people in, they can really just completely take over areas. So for a while now, they've been really trying to get rid of tourists in Amsterdam. And they've sort of been discouraging, you know, there are a lot of sort of stag nights that come from Britain, at least they used to, to, uh, to Amsterdam and so on. They've been really trying to get rid of that. But the latest one that they're looking at and something that they're going to probably, it seems like they're going to go ahead with, is they're going to ban cruise ships from the city center. Uh, again, as they try to limit those visitor numbers, but also to curb pollution. Pol politicians there said the vessels were not in line with the city's sustainable ambitions. And it means the central cruise terminal on the river right near the main train station. I don't know if you've ever been, if you've ever been to Amsterdam, you've probably been to the main train station, the one with the 200,000 bicycles in front of it. Well, they're going to close it. Um, and one of the reasons they pointed out, I mean, there's been some language that seems a little extreme. They were one municipal politician compared cruise tours to a type of plague of locusts descending all at once on the city. Now, I live in Victoria. We have uh, we have cruise ships that come in here, right? And I don't really think I think that's fair. <laughs> I mean, they're just coming coming to see the place, right? But part of the issue is what do they what do this what does the industry bring in at times? So, a 2021 study of uh, one big cruise ship found that it produced the same levels of nitrogen oxides in one day as 30,000 trucks. This is one that had been um, that had been there, right? That had been in Amsterdam. One mooring site, uh, one other mooring sites away from the city center have been under consideration, but no action has been taken yet. So this really just applies to one place. To give you an idea, more than 3.8 million passengers have gone through the cruise port of Amsterdam since 2000. <laughs> That's a lot, 3.8 million. It's a lot of people. But joining me now is Ross Klein. Uh, he's in Newfoundland. But he's the author of several books on the cruise ship industry, including Paradise Lost at Sea and Cruise Ship Blues. Ross Klein, thank you. Well, great to join you. This is an interesting one because uh, Amsterdam is not the first place in Europe. I think Barcelona, a few other places, Dublin, a few other cities have looked at ways to curb tourism generally, but also to uh, cut down on cruise ships. What did you make of, of the decision here to sort of say, listen, this is part of an issue that we don't need anymore, and that's bringing cruise ships in to this big and very important, or at least very popular uh, destination? Well, I certainly wasn't surprised because it is a wave in Europe of uh, particularly cruise ports that are being overwhelmed, uh, uh, taking some control. I think Dubrovnik was among the first that began to 
limit cruise ships. And, and part of that was the issue of overcrowding. Part of it was the issue of pollution. You know, that Venice, of course, put limitations on the larger cruise ships, uh, largely because of just the numbers of people. And, you know, Barcelona, but also places in North America, we've seen, I guess, you know, Key West has, has put limitations and a number of ports in Maine have put limitations. So I, I think it's a wave. And uh, I think the change, at least over the past maybe 10 to 15 years, is that ports are gaining a sense of self-esteem. They're no longer listening to the Cruise Line International Association and believing the lines that they're given, because with some experience, they realize that basically what they're told isn't what the reality is. Yeah, tell me about that because, you know, I'm in Victoria, so clearly we get, Vancouver gets cruise ships too. We get a lot of cruise ships in the summer here. Uh, I think everyone noticed what life was like during the height of the pandemic when they were all gone. Um, <clears throat> businesses weren't happy. Uh, others were happy. But there, but there is sort of, there, there is a, a lot at play here. What are, what do you think ports are learning now that uh, in terms of how to, I suppose, how to manage themselves sustainably, but also how do you balance that tourism demand versus the sustainability piece? Well, I think uh, the, the, uh, some ports in Norway have had difficulties that Victoria had with the, uh, with the, with the ships tooting their engines late at night. Uh, right. And they just said, you're no longer welcome here. You do it again, you're gone. You know, Victoria was a bit more easygoing about it. They had the same effect, but it took some time and it took a lot of complaining. Not in Norway, you know, we don't need to put up with this kind of stuff. Uh, and the the problem is that the industry of teleports, and Victoria is one of those that believes it, that every cruise passenger spends $100 in the port of call. And if you start totaling that up with the 250,000 passengers, that's a lot of money. But the reality is that few passengers spend that much. And those who spend any sizable amount, the cruise ship is getting a portion of whatever is being spent ashore. Uh, so the local community is paying the price of the crowds, but they're not making the money because a person takes a shore excursion. The cruise line takes 50 percent of, of what they what they collect for that. You know, they go, they go to the uh, preferred shops and the cruise line cuts their their, their 25 to 30 percent off the top. It's sort of it's a love hate sort of thing because the merchants are making something, but certainly not as much as they would with the off-the-street people. And I think that's what's going on in a place like Amsterdam. They have enough other visitors. They don't need to have cruise passengers come in with those marginal dollars. Yeah, that may, I mean, it makes sense for, for cities, certainly like cities such as Amsterdam, who are looking to cut back on tourism. And this is not the only thing they've been doing. They've been doing lots of other stuff to try to dissuade people uh, from coming to the city since it's been so crowded. That one of the things they could target would be something like like tour like cruise ships right it's an easy it's a relatively easy one tell me a bit about the pollution side of things because that came up quite um that was an important part of what Amsterdam was looking at here as well was sort of how the cruise ship industry at least that close to the city didn't quite fit with how they saw themselves anymore well it's it's part of it is the air pollution the air quality issues in terms of what a cruise ship emits there they 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 have uh incinerators on on board the ships but those are not regulated so they can put whatever they want into there into the air they certainly have greater regulation with regard to air emissions from from fuel probably in Europe than they do in Canada uh, in Canada the government is is quite permissive about the use of uh, uh, of scrubbers instead of using clean fuel. But of course, hey, it makes sense. BC, for the longest time, has given ships uh, tax-free fuel if they, bu they buy their fuel in BC instead of the US. 
Why are they why why are the people living in BC subsidizing an industry that earns two and a half, three billion, four billion dollars a year? They I didn't know that. BC. I didn't know that. I, I mean, didn't realize yeah. BC subsidized. Uh, I mean, it makes yeah, sense that, for them to try to get the business here, right? But 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 to to give incentives not to buy fuel in the U.S. for those ships that are coming up and down the coast would seem, seem ludicrous. Well, it's incentives to buy fuel in Canada. This was right. actually one of, my, one of the reports I wrote for CCPA in the early 2000s. It was one of those little hidden sorts of things. But it's it's the sort of thing of not thinking about the cost of cruise ships to the local economy, the cost to the local government. Uh, I mean, Canada recently came out with new reg- new regulations with regard to environmental practices. And the first sign I have that it's nothing other than what I've read, the first sign I have that they're nothing to be concerned about, I mean, there are something to be concerned about, but they're nothing of concern to the cruise industry is we haven't heard a peep from the cruise industry. In other words, what Canada has released as these new progressive protections of the environment are, are less stringent than what the cruise lines are already required to do in other parts of the world. So why would they complain? Interesting, because I know there was a lot made about those regulations. I remember when the transportation minister, Omar, Omar Al-Galbra, announced them. And you're right. Since then, we've heard very little about them, specifically from the cruise lines themselves. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, they're they're not trying to, you know, that, you know, they're like any major industry, right? They're going to do what they need to do. If they like the regulations, of they're not going to say, well, yeah, exactly. At least in past, and I don't see anything that indicates anything different here, is that cruise ships that have advanced wastewater treatment systems are given waivers from most most of the regulations. Uh, The the regulations are based on ships that have old uh, technology, and they're not keeping up with the new technology. You know, a cruise ship is producing per, per, per person 90 liters of gray water, wastewater every single day. So you got a ship with 3,000 passengers. That's over a quarter million liters. Quarter million liters of wastewater going off that ship every single day, and we don't know what's in there. In part because we don't want no, we don't really understand what the regulations are. But the other part is where is Canada monitoring? Where are they enforcing? Alaska used to have ocean rangers. They monitored every emission in Alaska waters and they enforced the regulations. Canada has never monitored and it's never enforced. So you can you can make up all kinds of regulations and the industry knows this. You can do whatever you want. I mean, we we had maps back oh this is back oh 15 years ago. We had maps when when Washington was 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 making their rules more stringent where we watched ships discharging and they would zigzag across the border. And when they zigzagged, zigzagged into the Washington side they got fined. When they zigzagged zigzagged into the Canadian side it was legal. Ross Klein is with us, author of several books on the cruise ship industry, including Paradise Lost at Sea and Cruise Ship Blues. He was, for a long time, a, a cruiser himself, someone who took a lot of cruise uh, cruises around the world, but has since also started to look into it a little bit more. So the Amsterdam thing happens, or is about to happen. Uh, how do cities like Vancouver and Victoria, how do they look at, at, at that kind of decision and try to figure out what a sustainable, and yet, you know, because they're getting pressure from both sides here. There's environmental groups saying you need to stop this. Um, There's business groups saying uh, it's important to the economy, so you can't stop it. Uh, Where do you think, is there a happy medium here somewhere for for places that have lots of cruise ships coming to call? Well, I think it's a hard challenge and it's hard to have, uh, particularly for people on the environmental side, to have confidence. I mean, for anybody with any length of memory, they'll remember Ocean's Blue Foundation 
which was an environmental group in BC that was the most progressive organization worldwide trying to bring eco-certification to the cruise industry. They had whistleblowers. And the thing that happened is because they were so credible, the industry pressured the government of Canada, the government of BC, the city of Vancouver to withdraw all funding from Ocean's Blue Foundation. Ocean's Blue Foundation, right. And they put them out of business, put them out of business because they were too much of a threat. Okay. Now that's, that's a lot of history there. And I think it's going to be a while before anyone who's been involved in the environmental industry or the environmental side is going to be very trusting of the government, of the tourism group, and of the industry making some false statements. I mean, they, they even employed uh, David Suzuki and his wife to do a risk assessment of the environmental groups. I mean, come on. It was a crazy time. But when you when, when you become a credible group, and that's what's going to happen, I think, in Amsterdam, there'll be in the next election, the, the current left-oriented uh, people in government, there'll be such a huge campaign funded by the cruise industry to get them out of office. Because that's the way the industry works. That's the way they work. Is it possible, though, to have both? To, I mean, I, I know this may sound like a pie in the sky thing, but is it possible to have the best of both worlds when it comes to having cruise ships come calling into your hometown? Uh, can you can oh. they be environmentally sustainable at the same time as 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 reaping some of the economic benefits that clearly they may not bring as much as the associations say they do? But there are obviously some uh, economic benefits to the places that take them in. Well, I think the key is that commu local communities need to treat it like a business, which is they don't is what they don't do. Vancouver's solution is let's build another cruise terminal. The problem with Vancouver isn't cruise terminals. They don't have enough airlift. That's why Seattle took off as a cruise starting point is because there weren't enough there weren't enough airplane seats coming to Vancouver to to have ships come here. Right. If if you're not swift enough to understand that and your goal is to build terminals because they're going to come if we build it then you're it's a losing proposition because you're not doing it as business you're not doing it with an intelligence of what is this industry how do they operate and why do they come to canada well they come to canada because they're obligated to by the by the passenger vessel services act they have to come to canada leave seattle and go to alaska because they don't have a foreign port they're going to pay a 400 dollars fine for every single passenger on board that ship Right. Now, Canada hasn't picked up on its value. It saves the ship $400 per passenger and they give away the ports and all kinds of freebies. I mean, that's not treating it like a business. Right. I, I guess so. We've been in some ways, we've been a little naive about this whole thing because one sees how it works. I mean, there was at some point during the pandemic, there was talk, of course, I remember this in the States, there was talk of trying to circumvent that rule, right? That they, they, they didn't have to stop in Canada anymore. Mm -hmm. But I gather that's been brought back to heel ever since. But uh, I mean, there, were, and there was concerns when that happened. There was people worried that, you know, cruise ships were going to bypass Canada and then just go right to Alaska. And all this money was going to be lost. It became the business argument won out again. But it's never going to happen because the press, the, the Passenger Vessel Services Act also covers civil aviation. Right. Which if they took off cruise ships, it would mean that anybody, any foreign flagged airline could then fly between the U.S. and anywhere else in the world with no limitations. Right. So they don't want that. They don't want that <laughs> yeah. The cruise ships are a small part of that tourism industry. So, yeah. yes.
Well, so I, I guess when one looks at Amsterdam, and they had their own, I mean, places like Venice and Amsterdam and Barcelona just attract so many people that they sort of have the luxury of deciding who they do and don't want uh, on their doorstep. But we've seen such a big expansion of people traveling, at least now, that one thinks that other cities might be able to have sort of recognize the power that they have as destinations and maybe get a little tougher on the cruise on the cruise line oh. industry. Well, let me use as an example of the, of of Victoria how weak they are. The that not even the majority, uh, seventy to eighty percent of the ships that come to Victoria come in for the evening hours, arriving six or seven o'clock and leave at midnight. Yep, they're doing it to satisfy the U.S. law. Victoria is not a real port call. Passengers are getting off the ship the next morning. They got to have their luggage outside the door by 11 o'clock. You know, it's like goodbye from the cruise ship. It is satisfying an obligation for U.S. law. And Victoria allows them to do that at a very low port charge. If you were doing this as a business, it's like, yeah, if you come in for eight hours from noon until eight, we have this port charge. If you come in after four o'clock and leave it before 10 o'clock or after 10 o'clock, it's this poor charge. And you're going to get hit that for 50 bucks if they're coming to satisfy the law and give them a break if they're coming in to really visit Victoria. That's treating it like a business. Uh, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> we shall see. We shall see what happens. Ross, thank you so much. It's great chatting with you. Big news over the weekend, of course, from who else? Elon Musk, the world's richest man again, uh, announces that his latest venture, Twitter, would be undergoing a full-on branding change starting absolutely right away. So instead of Twitter and the blue and white bird, the white bird and the blue box that you may be familiar with, it's now X. Um, yeah, X. I, I mean, I was like, what? X? Now, I get it. There's SpaceX, and he likes X, and there was X.com, which I think he sold to PayPal or something along those lines. So he has X. X is part of the, of the, you know, of the Musk brand. But what does X mean for a, for a social media app, right? So anyway, he paid $44 billion for it not that long ago, last year. And uh, this is the latest major change. I mean, there's been so many changes to it. This one feels... I mean, I guess they're all, none of them are more ludicrous than the other one. So, you know, chief executive, he has a new chief executive that he hired after people told him he should probably give the job to someone else. Linda Yaccarino had a long career in TV. Um, they said that the white X on the black background is a replacement. Um, and they say that it will be called X when you use it. They're not going to be called tweets anymore. They'll be called X's, which is, again, just seems absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the Twitter Twitter logo was designed 11 years ago by a team of three, and one of the designers uh, called Martin Grasser tweeted or X'd <laughs> that the logo is designed to be simple, balanced, and legible at very small sizes, almost like a lowercase e, which I think really worked well. Uh, freelance tech journalist Chris Stokel-Walker says it'll be tough for Twitter to break away or X to break away from its existing brand. There is this idea that when you have a, a brand that you know and you love and you have terminology that you know and you're used to, it's very, very difficult to change that. Yeah, I, I think I'm proving his point uh, as we speak. Weeks before completing the Twitter acquisition last year, Musk had said that buying the company would speed up his ambition to create an everything app called X, 
by three to five years. So here we are ahead of schedule, apparently, because it feels like everything else about it's falling apart. So I wonder what else they could do other than just change the change, you know, move the furniture around, rearrange the deck chairs, so to speak. Well, joining me now is brand expert Alan Adamson. He's co-founder of Metaphors and author of several books, including Seeing the How. And he joins me now from New York City. Alan Adamson, thank you. My pleasure to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, as a journalist, obviously, I use Twitter quite a bit. So I was kind of caught caught off guard when this happened. I saw it yesterday. I go, what is going on? What is this X thing? Uh, what was your reaction to it? Well, probably Elon's a better uh, product developer than a brand or business person, uh, you know, because yeah. clearly he paid lots of money for Twitter and has decided that he no longer needs the brand name or the logo. How important is the to me the brand name was was fundamental, but obviously he doesn't see it that way, and he has some reasons, I guess, for wanting to go with that X logo. Yeah, we can only guess as to his reasons, but from a brand or business point of view, a brand helps people understand what an offer is and remember it. Uh, and Twitter was very clear. Now, while its experience perhaps has been deteriorating and accelerating that deterioration under his leadership, it was still a globally recognized platform. X is a letter in the alphabet, relevant perhaps to Big Bird on Sesame Street, but has no meaning, no relevance. And it's going to be a long time before, if possible, he's going to have you believe that X is where you want to keep your money and how you want to run your life on Elon's X brand. Right. But he, I mean, he has some affinity for the letter X, needless to say. I mean, there's SpaceX and, and so on. Uh, well, SpaceX is actually a better name because at least you know, well, SpaceX is a way to get to space, where it's right. X yeah. on, uh, on, on, a, on an app, the X, like an ex-girlfriend, yeah. X space where Twitter used to be. Exactly. I mean, we used to tweet. I don't know what we're going to do now. If we, uh, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about branding is that I think most people who've used it regularly are going to continue to call it Twitter. Right? Why wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, people in New York City still call the old, the new MetLife building in uh, in Midtown, uh, the Pan Am building for some <laughs> generation. So, right. you know, but I think this is, you know, this is another nail in the coffin. I, I think the main issue is that there was no good story outcome for Twitter. He paid $40 billion. It was now worth 20 heading south. He's tried everything in, in his magic hat tricks. It's not working. Uh, I don't think you can turn that around. And then he'd have to announce that he's selling it for half of what he bought it. Doesn't make him look like a good guy. So he might as well change the brand name and have the conversation in his best effort to be about his new vision he has about the X platform and pay no attention to what used to be Twitter. You think that's what you I mean? That that would be your your with all your that's experience, my best guess. That'd be your because, best guess. Is changing yeah, the conversation. You know, you know, yeah. Exactly, change the conversation, create some buzz. He's great at that. Uh, he's a great product inventor, uh, but this is not a product invention opportunity on Twitter. It was rebuilding an experience platform, a little different than uh, using AI to to solve a problem or putting uh, a Tesla into outer space. Yeah, who knows? But from a business point of view, it's not going to help. And from a brand point of view, it's going to go down as one of those. Did you hear the time that Elon took a great brand name and tossed it out the window? Are we talking New Coke territory here? Are we heading into that? Is yeah, that? No, I think it's worse than New Coke because at least right. you knew it was Coca Cola. You may not like the, the taste of it. You may have been pissed off that it was, uh, you know, not it was mucking with the authenticity of Coke. But like Coke, you know, Coke could have messed up, but they still had the brand name, and you know, they could have 
factories could have burnt down and you could still rebuild it because Coke stood for something in consumers' mind. Twitter stood for something. They were having trouble delivering on it. They were losing and are losing users. But X stands for nothing. Anyone can start a business and call it X because it's not ownable. Right. And then not even copyrightable as far as I was reading. Yeah, not right. you, can, you can say I have an X product. Yeah. You know, and ultimately, this is going to require him to build such a compelling platform that people will start changing how they do things. And as you know, for financial service, which is one of the components of his X vision, um, been around a long time and trusts are number one and two to make successful brands and businesses. And that's why lots of banks are still called JP Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo. And to call something X and say, you know, give me all your money and run your life on X and trust me, I'll make it great, uh, is a real tall mountain to climb. It feels it. And I always thought Twitter was quite a quite an ingenious brand, actually, because it said it said a lot without saying much. And the logo was so instantly identifiable. Yeah, uh, yeah, good brands are shortcuts. They help you. Get, and you could just say Twitter and show the bird. And, and it summarized the premise, which is just a short chirp <laughs> and not a long term paper. And that's still a valid form of social communication being short and to the point matters. The premise is not going to change for the Twitter business, uh, but if anything, it will it will confuse the people that remain on Twitter. <laughs> it will probably permit a few Elon fans from joining it because it's so bizarre. Uh, but for the turning around the Twitter ship, it's um, a major iceberg uh, into this side. Yeah. And it's interesting because Linda uh, Yaccarino, who he brought in as a CEO uh, when he took that <laughs> informal poll online that said he should step aside, is sort of a brand person, right? I mean, that's not not necessarily. But, yeah, well, she's trying to sell the brands into advertisers, and now they're going to say, you know, how is this going to help? <laughs> yeah. And what is he going to do to solve the issues I had before? And ultimately, the numbers talk. And so the fact that half the users have bailed out in the last, since he took the helm, and I suspect he's going to lose another chunk of people saying, I don't get it. And now he's got a real competitor in Zuckerberg's threads. I suspect that it's just a, you know, a matter of time till the, you know, it's going to be one of the phenomenal unwindings of a business in history. And it's just a matter of time till it, it sinks into the, the sunset. Uh, Zuckerberg didn't kill off Facebook. He still has a huge business with Facebook, which is growing. And whether or not he can deliver on Meta is still up in the air. But Elon's decided, no, forget Twitter. It's actually not that relevant to the business he's building. Uh, so let's, you know, put that behind the curtain on the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the, that little blue bird and focus on the future. X marks the spot. It's just going to be a long journey until he puts something in that spot. Alan Adamson is with us this half hour, co-founder of Metaforce in New York City and author of several books, including Seeing the How. We're talking about Elon Musk announcing over the weekend that Twitter uh, will officially be gone soon um, and replaced by the letter X. X marks the spot. He has a long affiliation with the letter X. There's, of course, SpaceX. There's X.com, which I think uh, he sold to PayPal and bought back or something along those lines. But he's had an affinity for the letter X for a lot of long time. But as Alan's pointing out, it really doesn't mean anything. When you think about it, I mean, does this have to do with with the whole Zuckerberg threads thing? Is this just another one of these things where they're kind of like these are just toy? This is a toy for him, and he's kind of bouncing it back and forth. Because I thought the threads logo was actually quite well done. Yeah, well, ultimately, it comes down to can you attract users and can you provide the right experience and the right uh, platform? And you know, I don't think yeah, maybe when you saw threads being reasonably well done and actually attracting 
you know, a few more bodies than he thought or eyeballs. Maybe, you know, it became game over and he realized that, you know, no amount of blue checks or bigger blue checks or whatever he proposes is going to turn this ship around. And I, I, I just think he pulled the ripcord and said, well, let's if if it ain't working, let me just focus people's attention on the future where my interests really are. I love the name X and I'm back into AI and uh, and that's the future, which is a, a single plot because there is some premise that people don't like going to their cell phone, or their smartphones and saying, I have 40 app here, apps here. Which one do I use to get the pizza and which one do I use to right. get an Uber? But uh, so there'll be some consolidation. The odds of him being the consolidator, uh, given his current uh, experience or demonstration of experience on Twitter are not high. No, I mean, I, I and it does. I mean, WeChat. I mean, I, I've spent some time in China. WeChat does everything. I mean, those those they already exist out there. These things, but it's going to be a tough sell for him, especially given the politicization around around the brand. I mean, since he's taken it over, it feels like it's just been one disaster after the other. And yet, you look at his track record, and think, well, he's had quite the same. And you pointed it at off the top. He's he he is very good at some things and seemingly terrible at other stuff. You go back to what he's good at. He's great at uh, the best in the world at uh, putting things in orbit and still, you know, leading the pack. In terms of uh, letting you drive from A to B with uh, without uh, an internal combustion engine, so th- those are great things. And there's some evidence, as, as everyone has noticed, that his uh, shenanigans on Twitter was not helping the Tesla brand. Uh, now it's fine for SpaceX because there's no alternative. There's not Space Y or Space Z to go to. Right. He still has a he almost has a monopoly there, but. Ultimately, this was not good for the Elon brand, the Twitter, because he was not succeeding. And maybe threads convinced him that he could not succeed. And as I said, he was out of rabbits to pull out of the hat. How important is branding then? Because I was thinking about it before talking to you. You know, when when one looks at one's phone and sees all the different little icons, they're actually quite powerful. I mean, I I grew up obviously prior to this. So I remember what branding used to mean was sort of, you know, uh, a story to tell the image, you know, the lettering. We talked about Coca-Cola earlier, for instance. Uh, How important is branding? It must have changed now that people need to sort of be, need to identify something very quickly in in a big sort of litter of stuff on a phone and have it jump out at them. And Twitter actually managed to do that, I thought, with their existing logo. Yeah, I think think they were pretty good. You know, to some extent, first, you need a good experience, a good product. If that's not good, it doesn't matter how good your naming is or your branding. So it's still topspin. But if you have a, if you have a, and most products are not that different. If you have a very good product or a good service or a good experience, and you're not good at telling the story, which is clearly succinctly, quickly, like Twitter could do, uh, you're still going to fail. So he at least had half the equation, which was a, a platform that people got. Maybe you don't like it as much, but you could perhaps fix that. A platform that was recognizable around the world, hard to get. It's going to take lots of money to create a new one. Now he's uh, said, well, let's just uh, send that up on the next SpaceX rocket and uh, land it on Mars. And I'm going to start with a clean sheet of paper. I guess for advertisers too, you mentioned it earlier. For advertisers too, what what benefit is this for them? They're going to they're going to think, well, why why are you doing this? I don't I don't know more, what this more means. risk. More risk. Because don't like don't like volatility and don't like uncertainty and don't like surprises. So you know, telling your client, hey, we're going to spend X million dollars. We're going to put it on X. Um, you know, it hasn't been developed really yet. It's still the old Twitter. People are fleeing the ship. Uh, but yeah, we should put some advertising there. Most marketers would say, I'm not sure I want to bet with that. 
It's hard to put to put Elon Musk into. It's hard to categorize him. You know, I think you know. You think back to the the sort of the entrepreneurs who had a lot of power over time, and they always kind of respected their product. But I guess we live in a different era. This isn't, you know, he's not building. Well, he is building cars, but this is different than a Henry Ford or something along those lines. No, I, I think he's still a great. He's a great product inventor and a yeah. great. And he's so driven, he gets things done. It, it just this was a different challenge. This was not about reinventing the platform and having better search or better functionality or, you know, there was nothing good. He, he did this because he wanted the town square where whoever wanted to say anything, no matter how hurtful or how untrue it was, could come and say, I think the world is flat. Well, <laughs> Alan, thank you so much. We'll leave it at that. All right. Enjoyed it. Dead Daisies are a band you may not know. They're sort of a super group that brings together all kinds of really talented musicians who played for lots of other really talented musicians over the years. Uh, but they are heading out on the road in North America soon uh, to support a forthcoming album. So they're going to kick things off at the Elma Combo, that famous place in Toronto in late August on the 25th. They're in London on the 26th, Kitchener on the 27th, and so on and so forth. Um, and they'll be in Vancouver as well on September the 2nd. It all coincides with the uh, the release of their new album, uh, which is a best of on August 18th. It's a collection of songs from the six of their previous studio albums and a previous some previously unreleased tracks as well. A frequent member of the supergroup has included Doug Aldrich of Dio and Whitesnake, John Karabi of Motley Crue, and the drummer is Brian Tishy. Now, he's had a 35-year career. It's included stints with Billy Idol, Whitesnake, Ozzy, Foreigner, Slash's Snake Pit, Slash, of course, of Guns N' Roses, and many, many, many others. Right now, he's out on tour, actually, with Don Felder of the Eagles, who you may remember wrote or co-wrote Hotel California back in the day. Uh, and he'll be back with the Dead Daisies when they hit the road later this summer. And Brian joins me now. Brian Tishy, thank you. How you doing? Good, good. Yeah, I'm glad I, to be here. Yeah, I was, I was watching some interviews you've done recently, and you, there's one incredible line that you that i that you heard so you said there's a mountain of cool out there at the top of the top of it is a drum kit and it's amazing to think you've been in doing this for an awfully long time but you still feel the same way about the, about the drum kit which is a testament to your love of the of the whole thing i guess well yeah i guess when when you're a young kid and that's what you think it's a hard concept to change you know if that's how how uh, heavily it's ingrained in your head early on for no reason other than that's what you think you know I, I don't know any other way. Yeah, I still think that. First band I was into was Kiss. That was the right. first band I started listening to that was rock with the image, and I bought the records, and I learned how to play and just over and over, flip the records, you know. Because, I mean, for listeners who don't know, you went to the Berkeley uh, College of Music in Boston, right, which is one of the elite music schools in the country. So you, you had this incredible background as well in sort of what one might call like sort of the intellectual side of music as well. And that must have been – so you had these kind of two different worlds going on where you were sort of yeah, in but this that was, yeah. I mean, I think it's looked at like looked at like that quite a bit. But because, oh, Berkeley, and it seems always like a jazz, a prestigious jazz – based college music college in the 70s and it got more more rock and i think they learned to try it they, they learned to keep up with the trends more or less you know or just, i think that which is a smart move you know like i don't know if you're totally into classical maybe you go to juilliard you're only into jazz maybe berkeley was the place to go but if you want to get to a bigger picture on you know what musicians do you know you got you got to include rock i mean there's it's a career it's money to be made uh, it's a talent. It's totally different than jazz. It's like it, there's a whole different 
rule book. It's not rule books, but there's a different set of like things to like keep in mind, I guess, you know, I guess what I'm getting at, because I was going to tell a story, basically saying I got into music theory in high school because of Randy Rhodes and Ingve. I heard started hearing Randy Rhodes talk about, you know, tritones and and, uh, diminished scales. And I heard Ingve talking about arpeggios and I mean, just hearing they play like in classical and he's learning violin lines on his on his guitar. So I I was really uh, curious to learn about theory. And I understood the basics. Cause I took, took a couple years of piano lessons in um, for, prior to playing drums. Like my mom made my sister and I at the time it was just my sister and I both started going to piano lessons once a week. I was like, oh, this sucks. I'm because we had a piano at home. My parents could play and they, they would play and sing and they could read. But I had no interest in it. And I wish I did because it's it's i mean piano's amazing and it's just an it's another tool but i i think it's amazing i understand it i suck at it you know the most yeah. i've done in the past year on piano is try and learn eruption you know because it's not that it's very rhythmic you know you could right. that's about it you know but, but it's yeah hard, man, but Ber- berkeley was great i just my parents were like you're going to college you have no choice and i was like where am i going to play drums like you're going to and i just thought university like fraternities and football and co- like what's co- college you know for what and somebody said there's a music college and i told my parents about it and that worked out great being around other drummers and guitar players and musicians you're just constantly around if you want to go for it 24 7 that's where you can do it given that background i mean and this idea that you always i mean i've been listening to you give other interviews and so on this idea that you're always looking to get better right i mean there's no kind of understanding i guess understanding the theory and so on helps with that but you you've now played with all these incredible musicians over the years and, and i'm sure they feel the same way about you what's it like to have that grounding and all that stuff when it comes to sort of playing in super groups playing with the billy idols of the world where you're sort of just you're coming into them, right? So they see you as a pro, you see them as a pro. I've always thought about it a bit like hockey or something, playing pickup with other great players, right? Is that, is that what it's like? Well, it's all it all revolves around rock drumming, right? So it's kind of like you try and just adapt to make, you know, what, whatever you're doing, make it, you know, make it work for the band you're in. There are little changes to be made, but I think that's with with anything. I guess yeah, I'm, I don't ski, I can snowboard a little bit, but I'd imagine there's different types of snow you know like whether how, how yeah. thick it is or how hard it is or soft and you have to adjust right so it's weird you get older and you've been doing this a long time you can't look at anything the same at my age now than i could 20 years ago you just can't you can't look at anything from your 30s the same way you looked at it when you're you know, 15 and uh but but yeah i i kind of look at like i'm definitely going to get to a point where that's it my life is done here i am and i'm gonna be like still so far away from where i where I know my potential is like, I know what it could be. I, I see it, but then there's like a certain amount of hours in the day, a certain amount of other things going on in life. And then there's a certain enjoyment, you know, I have put time and I put like, I think it's pretty, pretty hardcore focused time into practicing, but there's still, there's so much. Yeah. And I, and I always want to, I think we're all the same musicians. You always want to play the best you've played every time you're either, you know, in studio or live. And I think really live, you're just like live. This it's all happening now. You can't stop and say, let me fix something, you just go. And and that's really important to be able to walk off stage and say, I, I did a decent job. But but I always want to get better. Um in, in every aspect. Like right now I'm in Reno, Nevada, and I'm I'm doing shows with Don Felder. And the set list is amazing. But it's not a set list of uh, quote unquote, like challenging drum parts as far as like, oh, I have to learn how to play these type of drum beats or something. You, but you got to make it feel good. You have to make this world that Don 
came out of and is and created you have to make it comfortable for him and the band and the band they're all great musicians and it the, the drumming might be more on the simpler rock side cool but it's then it becomes feeling groove it becomes every it always is that but it's just am i making it feel and groove as best as i can for this gig you know i want to play simple stuff better than i've ever played it before and i just want to play in general better and i want my techniques to get better and and speed and endurance and blah 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 and and, and you know yeah yeah i i, I always Always great, though. Them. I mean, I, I think people who aren't musicians look at people who are really accomplished at what they do and think, well, there must be a time. I mean, I went to see Steve Gadd. You mentioned Steve Gadd a while back. I went to see Steve Gadd in Seattle uh, before the pandemic. And for me, as a non-musician, it just looks so effortless for him, right? But of course, I don't have the ear to hear what he's actually doing. Uh, you, you always think that musicians at a certain age just go like, I got it. I got this down and whatever this is. And then you realize, no, nah, that's not it at all. They don't. And they're just, they're well, just, well, they I, keep I, reinventing, I, right? I, I, lo- I love Steve gad's playing um it's it, yeah it is so so groovy and natural and his ideas flow so effortlessly he's one of the greats he really is he's, he keeps you on your feet he keeps your ears on their feet so to speak and um yeah but he's one of the all-time greats he's you know somebody has i always go like when you talk about people like that somebody had to be that and that's why we have guys like steve gad and uh somebody had to get to that point and do certain things that everybody else goes man that's pretty much you know there's the best of the best and there's the worst of the of the worst. Like there just has to be, you know, you can go and talk about it for hours as to you, how you, somebody becomes that or not. Yeah, you, know? you explained it in a cool way, I think, where you, where you sort of say you're looking for your moments, right? Depending who you're playing with, right? You're kind of looking for your moments when you're going to do something or improvise or come out or, you know, sort of add to the thing and, and, and be yourself. But also at the same time, as you mentioned, playing with Don Felder, for instance, it's a different, you know, you're there to make to make that band sound good, right? You're not there to, you know, do your own thing. I don't even want to be uh, noticed on that stage because it's so not about me. It's I'm not there to put on a show. I'm there to make the band sound good. I'm there to play these iconic songs, this insane set list as fluidly as possible and as, you know, without any question marks arising throughout the set. I don't want any, but what happened there? I don't want to be noticed like that. I want it to just be a smooth sailing little trip for the night, you know, the coolest spot for the drummer is the little break in Hotel California when you you hit the timbali. Well, you hit it at right. the end of the song, but that's it. But they still can't kill the beast. You know, just just to get that. That's that's good enough for me, man. Hit that timbali. The audience loves it. Tell me about the Dead Daisies. I mean, what a lineup. And you've been in and out of that band over the years. The lineup has changed quite a bit, but I've watched a lot of the sort of on the videos that are online of your concerts. You've always bring the same great energy. And now you're playing some really cool clubs in, in Canada. You can play Elma Combo in Toronto, which is obviously a legendary spot. Um, yeah, man. I what, think, yeah. I believe when I got my first gig in 1989, I believe we played there. And that's why when I, when the name pops up, it's always been familiar in my head because I played with this, uh, I actually left Berkeley. I was like right. 20 years old. It was 1989. And I, and I auditioned for this uh, female singer named Jody Bon Jovi. Right. John Bon Jovi's cousin, right? So right. she was in Jersey and she had a band together and she had a deal with, the, you know, her, her cousin, uh, Tony Bon Jovi. They did a record. It was all like Manhattan based. And uh, my buddy, uh, JD, who plays bass in Black Label Society, we were at Berkeley together. He had left early and joined the band. He went, we're both from Jersey. So he calls me once later. Hey, man, you should come down on audition you know the drummer split whatever and like oh, this is new york a big time gig the video was going to be on mtv and and all this kind of stuff but we did i went down audition and got it and i don't know a week later we did a run in a tour bus and i believe we played on a combo i think we did so that's why it's been this very familiar name to me because that was one of the one of the first places i ever played like on a 
on a real tour, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of an unassuming kind of place, but yeah, it's, it's, it's legendary on Queen, right? It's legendary on uh, Spadina, rather. It's a college. Oh, uh, Spadina just south of college. Yeah. I used to have a, a cousin who lived upstairs, upstairs from it a million years ago, back in the day. So, and, and, and that's, and that's the, so you're doing this, this Canadian part of your tour. You're, I mean, you guys are busy. You're going on this massive tour right around that. You're in Japan, I think. You're doing a lot of European well, dates I mean, near the end of the year. Yeah. It just worked out the way it worked out this year with uh, with John Karabi coming back in. And, you know, I think by the spring somewhere, you know, that was established. You know, Glenn Hughes was in, was singing and playing bass in the band the past few years, uh, which we, you know, we did last year, which I had a great time with him. And, you know, he, he's at a point in his life where, he, you know, he, he's doing uh, the, the Deep Purple. I think it's the 50th of a uh, burn, right? The burn record. 50th. Right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, hey, man, life is short. Glenn's, uh, I want to get some other stuff going this year. You know, okay, okay cool. Because the Dead Days is, uh, but they call Karabi back and we're like, great, worked out. The schedule's worked out. And and the schedule already this year was more or less to work this, the latter part of the year. You know, we, we, we kind of knew that. So we had a little time to plan ahead for all that. And, and yes, yeah, so we're doing the U.S. and the Canada. That's going to be a few weeks of that. Then there's a little bit of time off, and then we go um, to Japan for a couple shows, straight into Europe, a little week off or something, then back to Europe. And yeah, happy that I'm out here with with Don, you know, with Felder doing this stuff because uh, I love playing with him, and and it's great music, and you know, um, he's just he's a badass. But uh, so I'm I'm doing this, and then uh, for a few more weeks, jump right in the Daisies, do that, and then I'm home for a little break and keep going with the Daisies, and it all worked out. Awesome. And there it is. You know, they had the drum kit at the top of the pile of cool and you're still there. You're still sitting behind one, which is which well, not well, everyone no. has the great blessings and, and the well, great, uh, obviously, the, uh, you know, yeah. that has earned that earned that as well, no doubt. Yeah, but I have now I have no choice. If somebody <laughs> right. said you can't play drums, like, well, then I'm screwed. Yeah, what, what am I going to do? Yeah, yeah I'm I like, never thought of it that way. Yes, indeed. I, yeah, I, I, I don't even know. I don't even want to think about it. I'm just like, it's it's cool that it's still there. And, uh, and, and uh, I know no other way. And that's what I do. And there you go. So I'm glad there's still rock ba- bands out there that want me to play rock drums, you know. Well, Brian, thanks so much. And uh, well, yeah, we look forward to welcoming you back to, uh, to Canada, to the other side of the border. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a blast. Sure.